0: Well, since becoming an adult, I have only built two Lego projects. I don't know if you're a Lego fan or not, if we have any Lego maniacs in here. All right, I hear, all right, wonderful, a clap, at least one, thanks, John. Um, <laughs> and so I've only built two Lego projects. I want to show you a picture of both of them right now. The one on your right is, was a Ferrari, It looked really cool when, you know, it's it's small, but I got sent it for Christmas. I had never done a Lego in my adult life before, and I got sent it while actually having COVID, and so it was kind of a nice reprieve from just suffering for a full week to be able to work on this Lego project. I've done puzzles before, but puzzles don't give you step-by-step instructions. I've put this here and this here. This was nicer and easier uh, than a 500-piece puzzle, but I got given that, that gift, and I put it together. It was really enjoyable. I brought it in. I thought it looked really cool. It's a Ferrari. Put it on my bookshelf here at my office, and uh, you know, lo and behold, it's so cool that my son loved it. He said, Dad, can I play with that? I said, yeah. I mean, it has wheels, doesn't it? So he took it and you know, was rolling it around, and the thing was is I, I let him play with it. I didn't teach him how to play with it, and so after a couple times of him running it right into a wall finding a couple piles here and there of Lego blocks, I had no idea where they were supposed to go. Well, I just kept giving it to them because it still had wheels and, I mean, before I knew it, the, it's almost unrecognizable, right? So this past Christmas, I was given another Lego sit and that's the green card there on the left. It's a cool Mustang, it looks really, really neat. Uh, but this time, my plan to preserve it uh, looked very different than the first time, right? <laughs> I, I didn't have a plan to preserve my first car. I just let Cannon play with it. But this time I, I have a plan. And so he's only allowed to play with it when I'm around. No walls are involved here, just straight, you know, writing. And so I have to have a desire not only to preserve it, but a plan to preserve it. And that's what I have this time. And you know, as we come to our text this morning, Uh, Paul is really concerned about the gospel. He's really concerned that Timothy not only be built up in the gospel, but also preserve the gospel. Like I built and now am preserving my green car. Paul says, Timothy, the gospel will build you up, but it also will preserve you. And so lean on it. And that will be what we see in our text this morning. As we saw last week, Um, Paul is talking to a younger Timothy. He encourages him toward a God-centered view of life. He says, I'm a prisoner, but he's active in so doing. And so he tells him to remember what God has done in the gospel and to even fan into flame the gift of God in his life. And in our passage today, he encourages Timothy to stand firm in his confidence in the gospel because the gospel builds and preserves the disciples. And that's our big idea for this morning, that the gospel builds and preserves disciples. So Timothy, stand firm in this confidence of the gospel. The overall point to Timothy in this passage this morning is this. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel the gospel builds and preserves disciples, so don't be ashamed of it. Don't, don't tuck it underneath your bed. Don't keep it in your pocket as you talk with unbelievers. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Look and underline in your Bibles each of these instances where we see this show up. Verse 8, we see there he says, "Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord." All right? So don't be ashamed, Timothy. Verse 12, he talks about him himself. He says, "But I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed. Paul says, okay, Timothy, you don't be ashamed. Look, I'm not ashamed. And then he gives an example of Onesiphorus. In verse 16, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. To be ashamed of the gospel was something that Paul stresses to Timothy that's not consistent with the life of a Christian. No matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, we are not to be ashamed. And so Paul looks at a Timothy who might have been a little frightened, who might have seen the detractors around him like Fidilus and Hermogenes and the others in Asia, and he might have been worried. What, is this real? What are those guys doing over there? And Paul tells him, you need to root yourself in the gospel because the gospel builds and preserves disciples. So let's Look at the first main point, first primary idea this morning. That's that the gospel builds disciples. Number one, the gospel builds disciples. Paul is concerned for Timothy to continue pressing into the gospel. So let's look back at his exhortation in verse 8. Would you look there with me? He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul's first exhortation to Timothy is, don't be ashamed, Timothy. So let's start by defining what what does Paul mean? What do we mean when we talk about being ashamed or when we talk about shame? Well, one dictionary defines shame as a, a painful emotion, Caused by the belief that one is or is perceived by others to be inferior or unworthy of affection or respect because of one's actions, thoughts, circumstances, or experiences. I don't want you to write that on that whole definition. But what I want you to get is this feeling of either internal or external pressure that either I'm not worthy of respect or affection or I'm inferior of that. But of course, Paul isn't talking here to Timothy and saying, don't have a sense of shame before God, because that's actually a healthy view of shame. When we approach a holy God, infinitely holy God, we should feel shame for the sin that we've committed. But he says here, don't feel shame about something else. Don't be ashamed, which he's saying, don't view that as unworthy of respect. Don't view that as inferior of your attention. What I want you to think of this then is embarrassment or discomfort or lack of confidence. Paul wants Timothy to not have shame about what? About the testimony about our Lord. So he's not talking again about this personal shame before God. Paul knew that the first thing Timothy needed to be built up as a disciple was confidence in the gospel. And that's our 1st subpoint for disciples are built up. Is and Paul knew Timothy needed to be built up as a disciple by being confident in the gospel, having a confidence in the gospel. Paul's telling Timothy not to feel shame regarding the gospel, as though the gospel itself is inferior or unworthy of Timothy's affection or respect. Paul's desire to, is, is Timothy's confidence. And so he tells Timothy about his own confidence as an example in, down in verse 12. After Paul talks about why he's suffering, look in verse 12 with me. He says, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced. So for Paul, that's the opposite of being ashamed, being knowing and being convinced. It's a convinced confidence that Paul is telling Timothy, you need to have this. Write down those two words, convinced confidence. Paul wants Timothy to have this convinced confidence about the testimony about our Lord. And what's that? Well, it's nothing other than the gospel. The testimony is is just a, a witness a message about something that someone has experienced or seen to be true. And so for Paul, he's saying, don't be ashamed about the testimony, about the witness, the message about who Jesus is, who you've come to understand him to be, not just for you, but for sinners around you. Much like we do, Paul uh, Paul uses synonyms. He doesn't just use the the one word all the time throughout his paragraph. And so here he uses a synonym for the gospel called the testimony about our Lord. He uses other synonyms. In verse thirteen, he calls it the pattern of sound words. Then in verse fourteen, he calls the gospel the good deposit. Let me pause though, real quick, because if this is maybe your first Sunday here, you're probably wondering. All right, we've been talking about the gospel a lot this morning already. What is the gospel? Well, first and foremost, the gospel is not a person, right? So we talk about being confident in the gospel, but the gospel isn't the thing in and of itself. It's not the person. It tells us, though, about Jesus, who was a person. The message of the gospel tells us about an infinitely holy God. It tells us about who God is and gives us a right view of who God is, that He is merciful, creative, gracious, patient, wise, powerful, loving, forgiving, just, and compassionate. Tells us about who He is, and then in contrast, we get to see who we are, and not a whole lot of those things describe us left to ourselves. Adam and Eve, the first people, rebelled against God. And now you and I do this very same thing. We are weak against sin. But in God the Father's infinite love and compassion, He sent His Son to become a human like us. I mean, just imagine that. The infinite God becoming and becoming finite, taking on flesh to become like us. And you've probably heard his name a couple times this morning. His name is Jesus. And his name actually gives the purpose for his coming. So if you're new this morning and you're, you're hearing about the gospel for the first time, and you hear this word Jesus, you've probably heard it more so as a cuss word. But Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. That's his purpose for coming, to save his people from their sins. How did he do that? Well, by living a sinless life by showing the power of God through the miracles that he distributed to to those in need. He taught as one with authority, and he never lied. And then he set his face toward Jerusalem, which is where he went to be killed and died. For multiple purposes, well, the religious leaders didn't really like what he was teaching. Satan was trying to thwart any chance of God redeeming people. Jesus himself knew our state and wanted to die as a sacrifice, a substitute for our penalty. And then also he died to glorify God, to actually make a display of God's perfect love and justice on the cross at the same time that he would take the penalty that you and I deserve and also show that no stooping is low enough for God to come down and in his compassion redeem people to himself that is the gospel and he invites all to submit to him as the only king and ruler of their life and to seek their fullest satisfaction and happiness in Jesus alone and it's that gospel that Christians have come to know have come to believe but Paul takes that belief in the gospel a step further right he says don't be ashamed of that gospel don't be ashamed of that gospel. Being unashamed of the gospel looks like not, or it looks like standing boldly when someone asks you about your faith in Jesus. They say, "What's that all about?" It looks like being willing to lose favor of family or friends simply for believing Jesus and centering your life around Him. What it doesn't look like is remaining silent, as maybe a coworker comes in on Monday and talks about how they spent their weekend. Drunk, wasted, contemplating, what's the point of life? Am I ever going to be happy again? If God is real, why doesn't he just show me? And we sit there nodding our heads, hoping that we'll say something, hoping that that person has what we have, but then we don't. That's not being unashamed of the gospel. What drives you not to share Christ in those moments? My hunch is that if you don't, your reason for not doing so is probably pretty similar to what Timothy might have been feeling himself. I mean, Timothy was a friend of Paul. Why would Timothy have ever been ashamed of the gospel and of Paul? Well, Possibly because of the intrinsic message itself about Jesus, about a carpenter from Nazareth who went around teaching and he was really opposed by the religious leaders and then he was killed bloodied, bruised on a Roman cross? You think that's convincing? Timothy possibly was embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel because of the counterculture message that it proclaimed. Possibly he saw the affliction of Paul's own life and other Christians that they were enduring. Paul's imprisonment might have told him, "I I don't want that, Paul. Perhaps Timothy was feeling pressure from others who had abandoned Paul like Fidilus and Hermogenes. I wonder if you find yourself there. The gospel just seems a little too distant from your co-worker's life. Ah, they, they probably would you know, ridicule me. That I don't know about that. Maybe the, because the gospel squashes the cultural liturgies of, of you are enough and be true to yourself because it says that we remain silent. We see how other Christians' lives maybe have been affected, the loss of a job, the loss of friends. Maybe we even feel the pressure of family to give up such a restrictive lifestyle so we begin to consider it. Paul believes that for the disciple of Jesus, the antidote, the antidote to a spirit of fear is to endure suffering. We don't run from it. No, we live lives committed to the words and the ways of Jesus, such that suffering for the gospel, it just just comes with the territory. We do more than endure it, though. We embrace all suffering, which brings us to the second way that Paul knew what Timothy needed to be built up as a disciple, and that was to embrace all suffering. To, first of all, have a confidence in the gospel. Then to embrace all suffering. Look again at verse 8, after you've written that down. In the middle of verse 8, he goes on, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. (laughs) Oh man, in 2024, we are so good at avoiding suffering, are we not? I mean, we move to safe neighborhoods, we choose milder climates, we take Tylenol, we have heat in our cars and AC in our homes. I was given a steering wheel warmer this Christmas, and it is amazing not to drive to work with a block of ice. We avoid dark parking lots, dark alleys, dark thoughts. We purify our water. We are naturals at avoiding suffering. So what drives Paul to exhort Timothy at the end of verse 8 to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God? Because Timothy wanted, or Paul wanted Timothy to be built up as a disciple. Taking his cue from Paul, Martin Luther uh, in the 17th century wrote that Christian disciples are built up in three ways prayer, meditation, and suffering. Prayer, as we talk to God, it's not just an escape from our difficulties, but it's part of embracing our discipleship. And so the Christian disciple is built up and made by. Prayer, oratio, is that word up there. Meditatio, you know that one. It's meditation by slowly ingesting God's word, by, by thinking on it, pondering it, considering what's going on there. And then tentatio is the word for suffering. He said, he said Christian disciples are made by prayer, meditation, and suffering. So Paul and Luther both viewed suffering as normal, not something to be ashamed of or run away from but something to be embraced we're comfortable with it more than that we expect it because Jesus told us to at the beginning of his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount he says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven then at the end of his ministry in the upper room with his disciples he tells them if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first he says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And So Christian disciples are not surprised at suffering. Paul tells Christians, Paul tells Timothy and all Christians to embrace the fact Of suffering. It's like you have a dinner at your house, good food, good friends, maybe some competitive games, and once your friends leave at the end of the night, you turn around and you're not surprised at the fact that there are tons of dishes to be cleaned now. Or when you have a baby and you go through tons of wipes and diapers, you're not surprised by the fact that it takes that much to keep this little tiny human clean and alive. Christians shouldn't be surprised by suffering, but suffering shows up in different ways in our lives. It shows up in three general categories, which are not exhaustive, but it shows up in persecution, affliction, and temptation. You may want to write those down. It shows up in persecution, affliction, and temptation. Persecution itself is Suffering for the sake of the gospel, similar to what Paul is presently experiencing, and I would say at the heart of what Paul is inviting Timothy into, is to share in suffering for the gospel. But suffering is much broader than that. Suffering from affliction happens when we live life in a fallen world. Our bodies will break down. We will contract viruses and diseases. We may even suffer for years with an unexplained pain or loss. Not only is sin all around us though, but sin is within us. Our enemy crouches at the door seeking to devour Christians through temptations. For Christians, our sinful nature works against our identities, our received identities as saints. We're tempted to steal company property. We're tempted to step out on our spouses. We're, tempted to find satisfaction in a relationship. In your struggle against sin, which the writer of Hebrews writes to his audience, he says, in your struggle against sin, have you yet resisted to the point of shedding blood? He goes on to reference that Jesus did, so consider him. We'll look at that in a second, but Christians shouldn't be surprised at Suffering, especially suffering of temptation, because of that sin within us, brothers and sisters. The reason Paul invites Timothy to embrace all suffering is because he knows what suffering produces. Suffering builds disciples. He wrote to the Romans and told them, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Guys, can we be real for a second? And in my nature, and my personality, I do not wish suffering on anyone. But if God's words here mean that there is something on the other side of suffering that we will never experience without it? I want that. And I want that for you. If suffering is what produces endurance and character and hope, a hope that will not be put to shame, I want that for you bring it on. If hope will not put us to shame, but allow us to experience the love of the Father poured into our hearts by His Holy Spirit, I don't only wish that for you and for me, I hope that we don't go through our lives without it. Because that kind of hope, that kind of experience of God's love, man, that's the stuff you build your life on. That's what the psalmist said. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Those are the bedrock truths that Christians throughout the history have built their lives on. And that cloud of witnesses of those Christians throughout the history of the church is cheering you on today to embrace what they embraced. And they're saying it was worth it. He was worth it. Jesus is worth it. They're cheering that for you. Keep going. Keep trusting by faith. Share in suffering. He's worth it. Polycarp was one such Christian who died in AD 155. He was compelled by a Roman consul to to recant his confession of Jesus as Lord because every Roman citizen and every Roman subservient had to confess, Kairos kurios, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So the Christian confession of Jesus as Lord is not is a direct opposition to that proclamation. And so Polycarp, being brought before this Roman consul, he pleaded with them. He's like, hey, Polycarp, what's the harm really in just saying Caesar is Lord? Oh man, his response was one of, that was unashamed of the gospel. He said this, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme the king who saved me. He was then threatened, all right, if you won't recant, if you won't confess, kairos kurios, then you will be burned by fire. (laughs) And this is his response to that. You threaten me with fire that burns for a season, and after a while it's quenched. This fire will die, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. He's calling them, he's saying, he's saying, be aware, understand the gospel and the end of your actions. They took him to the stake to burn him. As the fire began to rise around him, he yelled out to the crowd of onlookers and prayed a prayer to God of blessing and said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour. So they, in the company of martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. Oh man, that's someone who shared in suffering, who embraced all suffering that would come his way. And after all his efforts were finished, he went and collapsed into a savior. The gospel builds disciples through growing in them a confidence in the gospel and it builds mature disciples through suffering. Suffering is hard. This doesn't mean the suffering won't be painful. It just means that there will be purpose in it. And so Paul knew that Timothy needed to rest in his identity as a beloved, redeemed and resurrected son of the father in heaven. And so after standing for the gospel, having a confidence in the gospel, Paul wanted Timothy to not only embrace all suffering, but also to collapse into the savior. And that's our third way that disciples are built was by collapsing into the Savior. If you have your copy of God's word open to 2 Timothy, let's read this section where Paul is reminding Timothy who he is, who Timothy is as a disciple of Jesus in verse 9 and 10. He says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, or Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this is what we are to do as disciples of Jesus. We meditate on the gospel and how the gospel has called us to live lives that are set apart for the gospel. before we ever even tried to begin our works-based attempts at a relationship with God, Paul reminds us, you were given grace before the ages began. This is not a light switch thing where you, you could say yes to grace some days and no to grace other days. No, God's purpose And grace wrap around our entire lives as children of God. And now, even in the midst of suffering for His people, we are built up as disciples as we collapse into our Savior every day. The work He did was to abolish death, which means He conquered it. He conquered death and gave death an expiration date. We often think of death as our expiration date, but no, he, he flipped the script and he gave death an expiration date. Through his, through his resurrection, he made the finish line of death that it was into a starting line for the Christian. That we get life everlasting, immortality, which means life uncorrupted, continuous, forever with God. That's what he did. That's how he abolished death. And every day that we collapse into our Savior, as we're reminded of our identities as a recipients of grace, we look forward to that day when we will at last collapse into the arms of our Savior. He's the one sustaining us right now. He will sustain us to the end, and He will welcome us into that incorruptible immortality. Maybe you dread waking up tomorrow morning, because you know what this week has in store. I want to encourage you to this week, if that's you, if you're just like dreading this week, your feet hit the floor in the morning because you, have, you know what's ahead of you. Please meditate. Soak in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is a chapter that was written to Christians to, to allow them to see who Christ is and the purpose of suffering. Hebrews 12 is a chapter that invites followers of Christ to see purpose in our affliction. But it starts out by pointing our eyes to Jesus. Look at what the author encourages believers to do. He says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I don't know what suffering you're going through right now. Consider Christ. Consider His sufferings. Consider how He embraced all suffering, yet remained without sin. Consider His own compassion towards you in the midst of your suffering, and keep pressing deeper. You may be worn out by affliction, by persecution, or resisting temptation, but believer, look forward to the day when we will be welcomed into this incorruptible life, and all of our tears will be wiped away. In a few moments, we're going to sing a song, and the second verse of that song captures this promise that Paul encouraged Timothy with. It says this, what a blessed hope, though now tired and worn. We will spend eternity around our Savior's throne. Though we grieve our losses, we grieve not in vain. For we know our crown of glory waits beyond the grave. The grave isn't an expiration date. It's not the finish line. It's the starting line. A crown of glory. Are you kidding me? We get a crown of glory as we collapse into the arms of our Savior. I want that, and I want that for you this morning. That's why I'm confident like Paul that the gospel will not only build disciples, but will also preserve disciples, which brings us to our second point, which will be much shorter this morning. Uh, (laughs) And the second main point of our passage this morning is this, that the gospel preserves disciples. The gospel preserves disciples. Disciples. Now, this is a fascinating passage here where Paul lays out two active parties in acting, in the act of guarding the gospel. So look with me beginning in verse 12. He starts off finishing a sentence, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And he goes on in 13 to say, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, that by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul has come to know the character of the one who has saved him and called him to a holy calling by grace. He's convinced that this Savior, that his Savior Christ Jesus is able to guard what has been entrusted to him. But we do have to ask, well, what is it that Paul has been entrusted with? Well, simply put, it's what Paul has been talking about all morning. The gospel. The gospel for which he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher all morning. Paul's been most concerned about Timothy's relationship to the gospel. And he's reminding Timothy about the importance of the gospel in Timothy's own life. He says in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the gospel. In verse 8, suffer for the gospel. In verse 10, through Jesus, death was abolished. And through his resurrection, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then he exhorts Timothy in verse 14 to, by the Holy Spirit dwells within us, guard the gospel, guard the good deposit. Paul is concerned that Timothy be confident in the gospel and his ability to preserve the gospel message until the day of his return. That Jesus guards the gospel. Jesus taught this of his, his own preserving work in Matthew 24:14. He said this, "And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So for Timothy and for us this morning, we need to hear that the gospel is not going away. It is not some ideological fad that will one day fade. It is not one philosophy that's lasted for a long period of time and will find an expiration date. No, the gospel is the message about the eternal king who came, lived, and died, and resurrected in the there and then, in Jerusalem and in the Middle East. But he's establishing his kingdom in the here and now across the world. He does this through the Holy Spirit, changing hearts that have received the proclamation of the gospel. Paul is convinced that Jesus is able to guard the purity, the veracity, the power, the clarity, the effectiveness, and the truthfulness of the gospel. And we should be too. With Paul's conviction, Timothy is again exhorted to act in accordance with the convinced confidence that the gospel gives disciples. He tells him, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard. And then he says afterwards, guard the good deposit. There's both an offensive message and a defensive message that Paul's given to Timothy here. Paul's a good coach. He recognizes that defense wins championships maybe, but it's not the only thing that gets you home. You gotta have an offense too. Now he he says, Timothy, offensively, you've got to study. You've got to follow the pattern of sound words. Another reference to the gospel again. Meditate on them. Dwell in them, Timothy. Live them out. And what are the motivations for why Paul would have wanted Timothy to do this? It's because of the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He wants him to experience that. These are what drive an unashamed guarding of the gospel. Confidence in Christ, the love of Christ, and love for Christ. Christ. That's the offensive side, but on the defensive side, how do we guard the gospel? Well, most fundamentally, we have to know the core truths of the gospel, the core essentials of the faith, and work to keep those central and not move some of our preferences in there, right? But you might be sitting there thinking, well, that, isn't that what the pastors are for? That's what you guys are for, right? To keep the core truths central, which if you read in Titus 1, Titus would agree with you but you would only be half right because if you keep reading into Titus 2, you would see that it's not only pastors who are to know right doctrine, but every Christian. This is one of the things I tell participants in each of our membership classes that we have in the Yellowstone Room, that yes, the pastors are called to preach the gospel, instruct in sound doctrine, and to rebuke false teaching, but one thing that Paul says adorns the gospel of God that adorns the doctrine of God, is when older men teach younger men sound doctrine. When older women teach younger women how to live out the gospel. When every member of Christ is not only believing the truths of the gospel, but when they're also passing the truths of the gospel on to the next generation of Christians. That is one way we guard the gospel. If you want to see that, Paul says that in chapter 2, verse Two, he says, Timothy, what you've heard from me, the gospel that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Who, what will they do? We'll be able to teach others also. Look at that. There's there's like four generations just in those, in that verse, in those two verses, of gospel discipling going on. There's Paul who entrusted the message to Timothy. Timothy is supposed to entrust to faithful men who will also go and teach others also. There's four generations of gospel discipling going on here. That's how we guard the gospel, as normal, faithful Christians, by discipling one another. Inviting fellow Christians into our home, sharing coffee with a younger believer, taking a walk and sharing how we came to know Christ. Just, just picture just a small little seedling of a tree next to a giant tree. When the winds come, that small tree is probably going to get flipped over. And so oftentimes an arborist will tether that small tree to the larger tree so that it grows upright. That's what Paul is saying to do here. That's how we guard the gospel. Younger Christians, more immature Christians, and by immature I just mean you don't... You've like been in it for just a couple months, a couple years. Tether yourself to a mature believer. Tether yourself to them, so that you grow upright, so that you don't grow askew, so that you can display, one day, a mature walk in Christ. Younger Christian I mean this, this is teenagers, young adults, recent Christians pursue at least at least one relationship with someone who you've seen display mature walk in Christ. Ask them questions about gospel faithfulness, about the gospel itself, as many as you can think of. Faithful older saints in the room, please clear your schedule for us. We need you. We don't need you to be perfect. We don't need you to be relevant or hip. Don't worry about a perfectly clean home or familiarity with pop culture or a clean outfit. And we need your faith. We need your wisdom. We need your long endurance in the faith that has produced a character, one that we are working towards as younger Christians. We need you to pass on the good deposit entrusted to you. You've been guarded in Christ. We need you to be guarding the gospel by spilling that out to the next generation who will then in turn share with the generation after them. Oh man, Paul Paul tells Timothy here to not be ashamed of the gospel, to share in suffering, follow the pattern of sound words and guard the good deposit, to guard the gospel. He then he then reminds Timothy of some who have been ashamed of Paul. Let your eyes fall back down to your copy of God's word in verse 15. He says, "You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fidilus and Hermogenes. Paul references here a a large-scale defection from Christians in Asia, perhaps led by Fidilus and Hermogenes. Now, it's unclear whether Paul is just using hyperbole to just say all Asia, which is the uh, Asia Minor, the, the country of Turkey right now. It's unclear what this defection would have looked like, but what is crystal clear is that many Christians in the province of Asia Minor broke support of Paul. They broke support. They turned away, which does not necessarily mean that they deserted the faith completely, but they responded probably to Paul's arrest and trial, maybe even possibly to some of Paul's teaching by breaking partnership with Paul in ministry. The source of this breakup, again, is unknown to us, but could have had to do with irreverent babble, which Paul warns Timothy about later in chapter 2. This defection seems to really affect Paul. Given his pleading to Timothy in verse 8, don't be ashamed, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. In his pleading, Paul reminds Timothy of one positive example who was not ashamed of Paul. Let's read about Onesiphorus together in verse 16. Would you read there with me? May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know the service he rendered at Ephesus. Not much else is known about Onesiphorus. From what we read in 2 Timothy, there's a couple references to his household. But what's evident is that Onesiphorus was leaving a legacy of faith to his family, and Paul wanted to make that clear to the church in Ephesus. It's unclear if Onesiphorus had previously died, and that's why Paul addresses his household here and later in chapter 4, verse 19. What I lean toward is actually that Onesiphorus has been there with Paul in Rome. He's been there, and and he might have even been the one to tell Paul about what's going on in the Ephesian church, to tell him about Timothy, to give him a report. Updating Paul. Paul, though, was refreshed by Onesiphorus. Why? Because he was not ashamed of his chains. He was not ashamed that he was a messenger. He was not ashamed of the message itself, but hunted Paul down. And in this example, we receive the truth that Christians are preserved by the gospel. And what the gospel does is it causes Christians to lock arms together in the gospel. We come together to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to serve each other, to refresh each other, and to bless each other I want to draw your attention back to verse 18 because in there we see, in between those dashes, Paul sends Onesiphorus home with a benediction, a word of blessing. He says this, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. On that day. Man, I long for that day. Don't you? On that day when we'll see Jesus finally fully the gospel that we've been believing and holding as true, not being ashamed of, long for that day when our faith is turned to sight. In just a couple moments, we'll be singing a song called On That Day. And the chorus of the song goes like this. And I hope that you'll sing this more meditatively now. He said, the chorus says this, On that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voice as one. Till that day, we will praise you for your never-ending grace, and we will keep on singing till that glorious day. Brothers and sisters, the gospel builds and preserves disciples till that day when we will see, know, and praise the one who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. In light of that future reality, Christian, be confident in the gospel. Embrace all suffering. And on that day, collapse into our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. For the gospel. We thank you that through it we come to know who you are. We thank you that through it we come to know who Jesus is. We come to know the work that he prepared before the ages began, that he came and accomplished on behalf of all who would believe. Jesus, would you today, this week, be building up your disciples? would you be preserving your disciples till on that day with one voice we lift our voices of praise to you as we receive that crown of glory. May we not only hear the preaching of your word this week, but may we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.